Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need-to-know on news and politics, seven days a week. I'm Seth Devil. He's not the messiah, he's a very naughty boy. We all remember the life of Brian and the tale of someone who was definitely not a god being worshipped as the messiah. One book exploring the themes of false messiahs and their cults is American Messiahs, False Prophets of a Damned Nation, looking at how the US has had a tradition of these going back for centuries. We're joined now by the book's author, Adam Morris. Welcome to The Bunker, Adam. Thank you. It's a fascinating topic. Could you maybe explain for us, firstly, what what it is that makes a messiah, whether true or false? Well, a messiah is just, in generally someone who promises salvation. And typically, that's a salvation of the soul in the afterlife. But the messiahs that I studied also offered uh, a salvational message for the here and now as well. These movements often emerged from some kind of period of social unrest and sought adherence from uh, victims of that unrest or people who perceive themselves to be victims of that. Right. So the here and now can be troublesome for a lot of people. And for uh, many of them, they see the established religions as providing no comfort or protection from kind of worldly afflictions that these messiahs are offering to solve for them in some manner. Right. And, and so there's definitely something then about the conditions and how they change. But is there something quite universal about the appeal of Messiah? I mean, is it something that speaks to all of us or just some of us? I think it's pretty universal. There's a reason this has been happening for thousands of years. Uh, I think there's a human impulse to perceive the world as a dangerous place. Uh, And we seek protection in groups. And one of the things that these messianic leaders do is they form groups that revolve around themselves. And they typically don't gain mass followings, but sometimes they achieve a surprising degree of success and make a lasting imprint on the historical record of a nation, a religion, or a people. What are the kinds of people who are drawn towards these these groups or these messiah views? Typically, there are people who are feeling left out of a prevailing social order. The messiahs that I looked at most closely, of course, are in the American context, so really limited to the last 275 years. And they are left out of the American social order, which, of course, revolves around capitalism, obviously, but ever since the birth of the nation has had an economic imperative undertone and um, structure. So the adherence to the movements that I was studying, yes, they're all left out of that order in some way uh, and respond to a message of opposition to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for example, Father Divine was one of the principal characters that I looked at in my study, uh, he was what those of us today (laughs) would call uh, a middle-aged black man. And he led a group of interracial followers who all felt that the prevailing social order surrounding race in America was unfair and uh, causing them to be excluded from society. And I mean, I, I suppose it's, it's quite a universal, the idea of there being left behind people. You know, if you go back to the Middle Ages, if you go back to ancient history. But um, is, is there something in the US that makes it particularly amenable to this kind of worship? 
Well, I think so. A lot of the history of the United States, of course, made up with immigrants. A lot of people come here alone or in some sense feel they're part of a minority, that they don't belong. And the social structure of this country doesn't include the kind of inclusive social structures that exist elsewhere. And especially when you look at the 19th century, the doctrine of social Darwinism taught uh, mm -hmm. that people who get left behind deserve to be left behind, more or less, that the society would be stronger if we did leave them behind. And people reacted against this in various ways. We have, of course, the very strong labor movement in the 19th century responding to that, anti-nativist uh, movements responding to the reactionary nativism of some Americans and American political parties. Uh, and these groups, these messianic groups, often adhere to one of those messages. And they fashion a political response, but they also fuse it with a religious one, a salvational message that is able to address the whole person, right? Politics can't heal the soul. And that's not important to a lot of politicians, or you'll hear politicians striving for that kind of language. Uh, we heard this, of course, most recently in the rhetoric and tone of Barack Obama, for example. But especially in the 19th century, politics and religion were much more closely intertwined. And it made sense for social movements to come out of both traditional political parties and the mainline churches, the Protestant churches. And a lot of these messianic groups regarded themselves in that light as, of course, schismatic separation from those religions, but with the specific difference of having a leader who either openly declared him or herself to be God or the Messiah, or who allowed themselves to be believed as that that's what they were. That's a really interesting distinction between the sort of self-declared messiahs and the ones who, you know, direct you. Can you maybe elaborate a bit more on that? How have people really allowed others to call them the messiah and say, well, I'm not denying it, but? Yes. So some of the messiahs that I studied in the book openly said that that's what they were. Uh, Cyrus Teed, uh, turn of the century messiah, said so. Um, he even made claims that his corpse would be reanimated and that his soul would be moved to the body of his female counterpart in the movement. So there were some grandiose claims of divinity coming out of some of these leaders, for sure. Uh, Jim Jones made similar claims. But there were others like Father Divine who were much more vulnerable to persecution than some of these uh, other messiahs who were just regarded as religious cranks. Father Divine had a much more threatening political position to uh, the mainstream society. Father Divine avoided <laughs> claiming in public that he was God or he would circumlocute around that. And, you know, his followers all said that Father Divine is God. And Father Divine heard them say that all the time. But he would say all different kinds of things alluding to his divinity without getting caught saying it because it was illegal to say that uh, where he was operating. 
but, but crucially within the cult, he was effectively acting as almost the god or a god on Earth. He most certainly was. You flesh out the idea that, that America is, is sort of fertile ground for this, you know, this combination of the atomistic view of individuals and also of, of um, religion and so many religions. But there's also something you sort of flag up in the book, the idea that there's something almost anti-American or at least anti the typical American dream about these cults. Um, the, the way that they structure themselves as a sort of communistic society, I think, is the, is the sort of uh, language you, you sort of touch on. Is that right? That's right. So the quintessentially American aspect is the entrepreneurialism that you see here of spinning up your own uh, schism uh, against the mainline churches, going out and looking for adherents, finding ways to make them satisfied and remain with the group. That's a very American endeavor. You could call that capitalistic. You could call it just marketing. Uh, so what's ironic about these movements in America is they often latched onto some passages from the book of Acts that suggest that the first followers of the apostles lived communistically. There's a couple verses that these messiahs cite repeatedly. And each of the groups that I study, these American messiahs formed communistic uh, or quasi-communistic societies where people lived communally, they gave all of their earnings back to the movement or worked directly for it. They all often promoted celibacy as a means of population control, right? It's easier to maintain a commune that has able-bodied adults than one with lots of children and elderly people. Um, People's Temple, the Jim Jones kind of veered off that track eventually, um, but did preach celibacy as well. And, you know, a message of celibacy is already kind of anti-American. Like, population growth has always underwritten the strength of the American economy. But they had more stern critiques of American capitalism and imperialism. Cyrus Teed, who I've already mentioned, uh, openly criticized the types of exploitation of labor that he saw in the late 19th century, as well as the oppression of women. So... As a result, he had a large working class following that did a lot of the labor, ironically, in the group. And then a lot of ladies of society or middle class women who felt they, there was no place for them or who were dissatisfied with, with the very few options they had, especially as regards education. So that, that went against the grain of, of the way society was organized at that time. And as I've already alluded to, so did Father Divine's plans for his, uh, they called them heavens at first, but they were extensions of the original peace mission. So people living interracially and communistically was not the, the way American society was organized in the 1930s and 40s, as you know. And it went against all of the uh, de jure and de facto methods of segregation that existed across the country. You mentioned before the emphasis on celibacy and not having children tearing around the place. Um, more broadly, it does look like there's a strong emphasis on obedience and control in, these, in so many of these messiah cults. Why do you think that recurs so much? Well, wouldn't there have to be if, if, you know, the religion is promulgating a whole new set of rules that directly or indirectly oppose uh, what people were raised to believe. 
Mm. Um, obedience uh, to the leader is of huge importance, but there's also a mutually reinforced obedience in any communistic uh, endeavor where surveillance and control is distributed throughout the membership of the organization. And you see that in these groups. There's a lot of uh, tattletales and people striving to be in the inner circle, right? And to do that, they are helping the leader to enforce whatever social code they've invented for the group. You mentioned the term communistic and how uh, some of the characteristics of the cult can be seen in these ways. But I can imagine that actually some communists wouldn't like being described in those terms. And indeed, some cult members might not like that either. Yeah, I make sure to distinguish between the term communist, right, as one deriving from the thought of Karl Marx and communistic, which is organized around communes and communal behaviors and social organizations. So that has existed for an extremely long time. And as I've said, the first followers of Christ's apostles are alleged to have lived that way as well. Yes, and indeed, um, communism in its purest sort of sense predates Marx by quite a few centuries, as you say. Yes, and and you know, just to continue that thought, Charles Fourier, uh, his ideas were of huge importance to the 19th century American messiahs, who actually probably hadn't read Karl Marx. On the, on the point about terminology, um, it's very noticeable that quite a few of the cults that you describe really dislike being described as cults. Um, and it's almost a sort of kiss of death for their reputation. What's the alternative for them if they're to be seen in, in different ways? So they never self-ascribe that way, right? That's, it's not a good idea. Uh, outsiders refer to them as cults to diminish their appeal to other people, to denigrate the leader as someone who exercises brainwashing or you know the types of social control that we've already discussed. So they don't really refer to themselves as anything but what they are. So People's Temple referred to itself as a, as a church. The other movements that I look at invent their own nomenclature. So they don't ever want to be associated w- with a cult because we know what happens once the public believes that something is a cult. We see the, the most famous consequences in Waco, Texas, which itself happened because of the recent memory of what happened in Jonestown. Uh, in, in Waco, followers of David Koresh, another American messiah, uh, all, for the most part, perished right in a government ambush that was totally unnecessary and ironically was justified out of the belief that they were all going to kill themselves. So, you know, you can look at it in hindsight and say, well, the government just killed them instead. But cults, uh, by definition, are believed to be dangerous and subversive to uh, the general social order. Um, There is this uh, fascinating overlap between the religious and the political. I mean, you've already touched on it a bit, but how much are American messiahs political figures or have they been political figures? They really almost always are. Uh, It just depends on the degree. So the earliest ones that that we have are two women, Jemima Wilkinson and Anne Lee, whose missions really were by and large ecclesiastical and who saw themselves as reformers 
of the Puritan church or what had become the congregational church in the U.S. The further we move into 19th and 20th century, the more overtly political the messages become, the more intertwined the messages are. And that's a result not only of the intensification of politics and its uh, imbrication in the daily life of, of an American, but also because American society has slowly secularized over that, that time period, uh, where religion really did organize the politics and therefore the daily life of uh, early Americans. Politics are much more responsible for that uh, on their own today. And so you look at the most recent movement that I looked at in detail, uh, People's Temple, Jim Jones dispensed eventually with the idea that this was religious at all. Uh, he was an atheist, and he described himself openly as, as a Marxist-Leninist. So the political valence there became the predominant one after a while. Can I ask a slightly provocative question, which is uh, whether you think there's much scope in U.S. politics for t- today for political figures to become messiahs? When the book was published, uh, a lot of people asked me to make a comparison of that kind to Donald Trump, but I didn't think that it was applicable. So a a messiah has to offer a coherent message of hope and a vision for the future that they are actively attempting to instantiate or uphold. I don't see that in American politics now. I think... You look back 100 years, and it was very easy to see that in someone like William Jennings Bryan. Mm. Uh, We don't have those kinds of discussions anymore, uh, at least not now in the U.S. The political discourse is much more based uh, around fear and is negatively oriented rather than positively. Uh, So you don't find a lot of people articulating a positive vision for what the country should be or will be and more about what it shouldn't become. Right. And talking about hope, can we talk a little bit about millenarianism, this idea that uh, salvation will happen come the new dawning millennium and everything will be wonderful with the Messiah? Um, We're obviously past the year 2000, and that didn't happen. But um, the need to believe that some great dramatic event is just around the corner and just about to happen does seem to be very important to a lot of followers. I, I wonder why you think that is. I think everyone likes to have hope, right? And, and religions really depend on some kind of deliverance in the final analysis, that there has to be some alternative or something else beyond the decay of the human body. So that's why this idea will always endure. And I live in San Francisco, and you, you hear it in a lot of the discourse surrounding technological development now. And so maybe messianic thinking has even moved not only out of the the purely ecclesiastical and into the political, and perhaps now it has also migrated from the political to the technological. Not to say that there isn't anything connecting those things. There's threads, of course, connecting all three of those things. But you almost hear AI discussed now in terms of terms that we used to hear applied to the singularity, the moment where 
artificial intelligence supersedes human intelligence. Uh, beyond that event horizon, we have no idea really what life will be like. Fascinating. Thank you, Adam. Adam's book, American Messiahs, False Prophets of a Damned Nation, is available from all good booksellers. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows, including The Bunker, Oh God, What Now?, and Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was written and presented by Seth Tevo. The producer was Adam Wright, with audio production by Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, Bunker is a Podmasters production.